Thank you for listening to the More Revolution podcast. In this session, Nathan Edwardson will be sharing a message entitled, Under the Hookah. I want to begin in the book of Exodus, and we'll end up in Song of Songs chapter 3. But I want to set really a foundation uh, for the hoopah. Uh, my wife and I, 10 years ago, we stood under a hoopah. And I stood there as the most beautiful Hispanic woman in the world came walking down the aisle. And I stood there and I welcomed her under the hoopah. And, and we, we spoke our vows. I said, I do. And she said, I do. And I put on a guitar and I sang a song to my wife. And we were there, our wedding, we had over 700 people at our wedding. Wow. Yet we wanted 50. And it was, it was on the river. And it was amazing. Goose fights and all kinds of things. And, and I remember uh, during our ceremony, we exchanged rings and spoke our vows. And then there was that moment at the end. It's the moment you wait for, the kiss. And what I didn't know is that my mom had hidden a cage of doves down by the river. And when, when, I, when we kissed during like the kiss part of the ceremony, someone unleashed a crew of doves and they came flying out of this cage. No one saw that coming. And these doves flew and they came right over our heads and did two circles over our heads and flew off. Wow. And, and what happened was my grandma, my grandma's amazing. My grandma's in the front row. There's over 700 people. She thinks it's God. And so grandma stands up in front of everyone and lifts her hands and says, it's a miracle. That was my wedding. The doves flew off. It was amazing. It's the greatest, greatest wedding ever. And here's the ironic thing. The ironic thing is this, that 10 years ago on that day when we stood under the hoopah, we had no idea what a hoopah was. We had no idea what it meant to stand under the hoopah and in the blessing of God. And and the hoopah, the imagery of the hoopah comes out of the, the story in Exodus. The word hoopah, is, it's the Hebrew word for canopy or covering. And so the, the, the story of Exodus begins that God's people are in slavery. And what happens is they cry out to God. They're, they're in this brutal oppression, brutal slavery. This is God's people. And, and they, they've turned away from God, and so they're in slavery. What happens is they begin to cry out to God. And it says that God hears the cry. We, we have this God who hears the cry. God hears the cry and God says this. It's amazing. God says, I'm coming down. You want to hear God say that. When you cry out to God, you want to hear God say, I'm coming down. You're my children. I'm coming. And what he does, he he calls this, this unlikely fellow Moses to lead his people, to lead them out of slavery. And Moses has more excuses in faith, but ends up being God's man. And, and so what happens in Exodus, uh, Chapter 6, what happens is God, in this time, speaks four promises to his children. And in this time where he's coming down to rescue them, he says this. He says, I'm the Lord. I will free you from your oppression. 
I will rescue you from your slavery. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. And I will claim you as my own people and I'll be your God. That's what God says. He makes four promises. And what's so profound about these four promises in in, uh, Exodus 6 is this. That these are the four vows that a Jewish groom would speak to his Jewish bride on their wedding day. So anyone hearing these promises in Exodus 6, 6 would know, wow, that's marriage language. There's a marriage coming. Everyone would have known that. Oh, well, that's, th- those are the words. Those are the vows. And it's this God who's this covenant God that comes. There's a marriage coming. And then what happens is uh, later on in uh, Exodus 19, uh, verse 5, uh, God says this. He says, if you will obey me, speaking to his people, says, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, there's this idea of covenant that God has spoken vows. This is a God of covenant. There's a marriage coming. He's spoken vows. He says, if you keep this covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the nations. Imagine, imagine being God's people and hearing that in slavery. You'll be my treasured possession. I'll rescue you. I'll redeem you. I will claim you as my own. Not only that, you will be my treasured possession. This was another phrase that a, that a Jewish groom would use to speak of his bride. His treasured possession. Really, it's, it's a groom saying, I choose you. Out of all the women, I choose you. And this is what God speaks. They would have heard this. Wow, that's marriage language there. Uh, later on in uh, Exodus uh, 25, what God says, he says, build me a house. He says, if you build me a house, I will come and I will dwell with you forever. It, it's more wedding language. This is what a, a Jewish groom would build a house and welcome, welcome his bride into that. This God says, hey, build me a house. I will come and dwell with you forever. Is that not marriage? And, and then finally, the, the culmination of Exodus, Exodus uh, 40, 34, God actually does this. God's a God who, j- he doesn't just speak it, but he does this. God comes. He, he comes, he rescues his people. He claims them as his treasured possession. He comes and he dwells with them forever. It says in Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tabernacle. God shows up at a cloud. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it, and the glory of the Lord filled it. Now, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel had set out on their journey following it. But if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. So God in Exodus 40 comes and he hovers over them. He's blessing them, protecting them, and leading them. This is a God of covenant who actually comes, lives with them forever. Now back then, you knew where God was. It's like, hey, where's God? Oh yeah, cloud. You couldn't miss God. You know, you'd wake up. Hey, where's God? Oh, he's right there. Oh, he's moving quick. And, and they follow him. So they're, they're learning how to follow. They're learning how to live under and in the blessing of this God. 
They're just learning how to move with him. It's like, hey, he's moving. I think we should move. Like, I don't want to miss God. We want to, we're staying under him. We, we sang earlier, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, stay. They wanted that. That was their cry. And so they're, li- they're learning how to, hey, he's leading us. He's protecting us. He's blessing us. Here's this God who's hovering over us. And we like that. That's a good thing. And what God does is he, he rescues them. He leads them in, into a wilderness. And then from the wilderness, God leads them into this new land, this new life. It's all marriage. It's all this marriage imagery of this God who comes and says, hey, I'm claiming you as my own. Out of all the nations, I choose you. You're my treasured possession. You're my beloved. You're my bride. I'm coming. I'm building you a house. I'm coming to dwell with you forever, to bless you, to lead you, to protect you. And he leads them into this new life. Is that not marriage? And so the Jewish people, because they get marriage, like they get marriage more than most of us do. What, what, they, what they did is, is they raise up a hoopah. They raise up a hoopah in the most sacred wedding traditions. It's become one of the most sacred Jewish wedding traditions, a hoopah. And, and the hoopah is a symbol of this, that, that God is there, this God who hovers over us. This God who blesses us, this God who leads us, this God who protects us. And we're just learning how to live under that. And so on his wedding day, a Jewish groom would stand under the hoopah. And what he does is he stands there first because that's where marriage begins. Marriage begins with a man and God. That's, that's where marriage begins. Where does marriage begin? With a man and God. And when that man learns how to live under the blessing and the leading of God and the protection of God, then what God does is God brings him his wife. And he welcomes her. And he welcomes her under the hoopah. And what they, in the Jewish culture, and we talked about it a bit last night, but under the hoopah, they'd speak their vows to one another under the hoopah. And then what happens is after that, uh, they go to consummate the marriage into the bridal chambers. And the hoopah is placed over the bed. And they make love under the hoopah. I call it hoopah under the hoopah. <laughs> and then what happens after that? There's this seven-day feast celebration. We, do, we had this, you know, this two-hour thing with punch. You know, and we throw seed on each other. And man, they had a party. It was seven days long. And the, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, they, they would carry the hoopah over the couple for seven days. Yeah, no, no one wanted to be a groomsman back then. I don't want to be the best man. I want to enjoy this. And they would carry this for seven days. And the imagery is this, that God, God is there. This God that, that rescues, this God that treasures us, this God is there hovering over them. God's there in the marriage. God's there in the union. God's there in the vows. God's there in the love. He's there in the hoopah, blessing it, protecting it, leading it. And God's there in the celebration. God's in all of it. And because they knew that, that God's there. See, God always meant to be there. God always meant to be there in the love and in the intimacy and in the marriage. 
blessing it, leading it, protecting it. So they would raise up a hoopah. Uh, we see this in Genesis. In Genesis 1, uh, God created human beings in his image. Male and female, he created them. And then it says this, that God blessed them, and God said this, be fruitful and multiply. So here, right at the beginning of the God story, I just love the whole God story begins where God creates this man, and here's this man, and he walks with God. And then what God does is God brings him, his wife, his woman. And then God blesses them. God places them in this garden. God blesses them. And, and God gives them, it's like God hands them this gift of sex. God says, hey, I want you to enjoy this. Here you go. Sex began in heaven. Sex is God's. Sex is God's goodness on display in our life. This, was, this wasn't something that humans just stumbled upon. Like God creates these human beings and leaves and he comes back. What are you doing? How'd you figure that out? Like, no, we just stumbled upon it. It's great. So I don't know. It just... This was God's gift. God created them. And he, I want to bless you. And he hands them this gift of sex because sex is God's. I could just imagine like God in heaven, you know, around the, the table and he's got the angels there and he's like, I got this idea. Yeah, and, he, and he, you know, he hasn't created, he's like, I want to create this man and this woman and bring them together. I've got this idea. It's sex. What do you think? The angels are like, wow, that's different. I like it. It's creative. You know, God, this idea, and then he comes and he blesses them. God creates sex. He commands sex. I love following Jesus, being fruitful, multiplying. We have four kids, seven, five, three, and one. A lot of hoopah, under the hoopah. I'm not going to lie to you. Sex is God's. We have to see that. This is God putting his goodness on display in your life and in my life. Sex is not the enemy's ground. The enemy's perverted it. He's distorted it, but it is God's, and God wants sex back. God wants to restore sex. God wants to redeem this. This was his gift, and the enemy's coming. He's, he's ripped it off, and he's perverted it. He's destroyed this thing. God's like, I want sex back. Sex is God's, and then, and then what God says, he says this, he, he looked over all that he had made, and God said what? It's good. Sex is God, sex is good. Sex is good. Sex isn't some dirty thing to be hidden in the corner of the church. God says this, honor it. The, 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 the world says, have it. Have it with anyone and everyone. The church has said, hide it. Let's just not talk about it. It's, let's just put it in the corner of the church. Like Somehow it's dirty until you're married. What God says is this. Don't have it with anyone and everyone. It's too sacred. It's too powerful. Don't hide it. God says this. Honor it. Hold it out. Hold it out. This is God's gift. This is God's goodness. When God had the world exactly the way he wanted it, here's this man and this woman. And he gives them 
Sex is a gift. God says this, sex is mine and sex is good and I'm giving it to you. Then it goes on to say this in 2, 24, it says, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and his Xbox. <laughs> to be joined to his wife and the two become one. Now the man and his wife were both naked. I love this. They were naked. The man and his wife were both naked and without shame. There's no shame. God never meant to bring shame to sex. It was never, it was never, he's a good father. It was never his intention to bring shame to sex. And yet we know that sex has become, for so many of us in the church and in the world, sex has become the greatest source of pain and shame and confusion. Sex is broken. God never meant that. When God had it exactly the way he wanted it, there was sex and there was no shame. And God made sex fun. This is fun. I mean, God, God could have made babies grow up out of the ground like watermelons. God could have just dropped babies from the sky like, I'm a dad. God made it fun. God made it feel good. God gives us this gift. He's like, man, yeah, it's, it's for the kiddos, but more than that. I want you to enjoy this. You're my children. It's like a father who's saying, I want you to enjoy life in every way possible. I'm going to make sex fun. Amen. Amen. Sex is God. Sex is good. Here's the thing, though. We live in this culture that has ripped sex out of marriage and ripped marriage out from under the hoopah. We live in a culture where, where sex is no longer sacred in marriage. And marriage, it, it, God's not there anymore. Marriage is two people who sign papers. You would not believe how many married couples in the church are living married lives without God. And sex without God is not sex. It's two people rolling around under the covers. And marriage without God is not marriage. It's two people that have signed documents. And so this culture is ripped. The enemy has worked hard to rip sex out of marriage and to rip marriage out from under the hoopah. And I was driving back from Canada about a year ago. Yes, Canada. It's my homeland. I'm Canadian in heart. And, and I was praying. Our church was about to do a 10-week series through this, uh, the book Song of Solomon. And I was praying and just, God, what's your heart on this? And God began to speak. And it was so clear, God said, Nathan, I want you to call a generation back under the hoopah. I've always been there. 
have always been there wanting to bless marriage, wanting to bless sex, wanting to lead, wanting to protect. Like I've always been there wanting to pour out joy and freedom. He said, call a generation back under the hoopah. Show them. It was so clear. Show them how to fall in love and date and get married and make love and stay married under the hoopah in, in ways that, that bring great worship and glory to God and ways that bring freedom and joy to our lives. God wants that. Sex and marriage is supposed to bring joy and freedom and life. And sex and marriage, it's an act of worship to God. And so as the church, I believe we have a great calling. I believe one of the greatest callings on the church is this. To to show the world a sex worth waiting for. And if you're married, to show the world a sex worth fighting for. Married couples, fight for this. And, and, and if you're wounded, and many of us are when it comes to sex, and, and if you're wounded, a sex worth healing for. That we can't just talk about. We've got to show the world. We've got to put sex on display. We've got to show them. The world's got to see it because what they're, what they're seeing everywhere is, is these films and these images, and it's a false, perverted view of sex. I'm just going to read some of these stats that are flooring. More than 30% of junior high students are already sexually active. One out of every three junior high students right now in our nation are already having sex. More than 75% of American teenagers. So three out of four, by the time they graduate high school, three out of four high school students are already having sex. That's the world we live in. Teenage dating websites, which brag to have millions of members, encourage teenagers to select not prom dates, but partners for casual sexual escapades. This is the message being screamed in our culture. More than 30% of 15 to 17-year-old girls say that intercourse is almost always a part of a casual dating relationship. 15 to 17-year-old girls. One out of every four husbands will cheat on his wife. One out of every five wives will cheat on her husband. The average middle-aged man has at least 20 different sexual partners in his lifetime. And 43% of college students will have more than five sexual partners by the time they wrap up college. Such a cheap, shallow view of sex and what it is and what it could be. And pornography, there are over 300 million porn sites now. Nine out of 10 guys are, are, have struggled with pornography. Five out of 10 women have struggled and are struggling with pornography. This isn't a dude issue anymore. At the average age someone looks at pornography is 11 years old now is the average age. Kids are looking at this stuff online. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, USA Today, an article read, read, reads like this. 70% of the top-rated television shows feature sexual content. Up to, listen to this, up to 6.7 
sexual scenes every hour. So that all the shows we love and we watch are, are, just, are filled with sex scenes, shaping and teaching our culture what sex is. The average person watches 14,000 sexual encounters a year on television. Yeah, that's a lot. And here's the one, every time I read it, this is the one that floors me, and probably because I have, I have four little kids. This is the one that, that, that drives me, that most young women, our, our culture and our kids, for every 100 hours that they will take in the world's perverted, distorted image of sex and intimacy and marriage, for every 100 hours that they will take that in, they will spend one second learning about true intimacy and true sex and true marriage. And that's a, that's a huge deal. That's a big deal that, that our culture has the first and the last say. For every 100 hours, well, our, our kids will ha- get one second learning about what it is, and the church has remained silent. It's like we're sitting around letting culture shape our kids for sex. And so I really believe this, and this is part of the moral revolution movement is this, that, that we would, one of our greatest callings is to shape a generation for sex. Not to keep them from it. Like, we've done that forever. Hey, let's, let's keep them from it. Like, sex is bad. Oh, you're married, now it's good. To shape them, someone has to come and say, hey, we're going to shape you for dating. We're going to lead you into love and intimacy. I want to shape a generation for sex. We, at our church, uh, the stirring, we talk about sex more than anything else. I just love talking about sex. And I, I, I got a nickname in town, the sex pastor. You've got, you know, you got the lead pastor, you got the senior pastor. Sex pastor, yep. <laughs> We've got to shout this from the rooftops. We, we have a message. We have a set. We've got, we've got to show the world a sex worth living for, a sex that can bring freedom and joy and life and draw us back under the hoopah. And I want to see that in my day. And w- one of the questions that, that we ask all the time is this, why don't we talk about sex in the two places we need it the most, in the church and in the home? We've got to get loud. We, we need a sex culture. I, I'm, I'm blown away that, that everyone at Bethel writes books. It's like all of a sudden, like everyone at Bethel is a writer. I love it. So I've got people at my church saying, when are you going to write your book? I, I'm a kid. I'm my book. And they're like, Banning wrote a book. <laughs> That's Jesus culture. So I, maybe we need a movement, sex culture. We need a sex culture band and a tour. <laughs> Watch out, Jesus culture. Here we come. Sex culture. God wants to move. Coming after you, Banning. Where's Banning? <laughs> Love it. All right, so what I want to do, I want to jump in Song of Songs for a few minutes. And I, 
There's so much to say about sex. Why sex is too sacred and powerful to, to share with anyone and everyone. Why we should understand sex is a gift. Uh, why God gives us this gift of sex. How we can have sex in ways that just reflect God's glory and the oneness. But I just want to show you. I, I want to I just take you to Song of Songs chapter 3. And just for a few minutes, I want to show you a sex worth waiting for. If you're married, worth fighting for. And and if you're wounded, a sex worth healing for. Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 6, actually. It says this, Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Here's this man, and he's he's coming to this, his honeymoon. He's coming to his wedding day. And the imagery here of, of... sweeping in from the wilderness is this, that this man leads his wife the way that God leads his people. This man is God's blessing to her. Who is it fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice? Look, it is Solomon's carriage surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. They are skilled swordsmen, experienced warriors, Each wears a sword on his thigh, ready to defend the king against an attack in the night. Now, ladies, could you imagine coming down the aisle on your wedding day, and and there's your man, and he's standing there, and he's clean cut, and surrounded by 60 of his strongest friends, all wielding swords to protect your marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great picture. That's that's the best man calling. We need to redeem that. Verse 11, come out to see King Solomon, young women of Jerusalem. He wears the crown his mother gave him on his wedding day, his most joyous day. Now, uh, chapter 4, we're brought into the bridal chambers. They've spoken their vows the, the hoopah's over the bed. And they're about to consummate uh, this, this marriage. They're about to have sex. And he, he just stands there. This amazing scene here. I just want you to see it. I, I, maybe you, you, you haven't seen it before. I want you to see what this could be. He stands there and he just begins to speak to his wife. You are beautiful, my darling. Beautiful beyond words. He just stands there gently affirming her. He just begins to speak to her and breathe life into her. You are so beautiful, my darling. He doesn't put the moves on. He doesn't tear off his shirt and wrestle her under the bed. He just begins to praise her. He begins to praise her beauty. He's wooing her into intimacy. He just stands there and he speaks to her. You're so beautiful, my darling. Your eyes are like doves, which means they speak of peace. Behind your veil, he lifts the veil, looks into her eyes. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Now, this is... I love the goats. 
But this is real intimate language here because in the Jewish, Jewish culture, a woman wore her hair up. So the picture is that he's now, he's, he's praised her, he's wooed her, he's calling her into intimacy. He's not forcing, he's not demanding, he's not guilting her. And now he stands behind her and the imagery is that he takes her hair down and her hair falls down like a flock of goats. Winding down the slopes of Gilead. I mean, this man, this man, he is Shakespeare. He's pulling out all the stops here. Now, part of it is this. He recognizes the crock-potness of his wife. Uh, you've heard this. Men are microwaves. 30 seconds, we are turned on and ready to go. I told my wife, 30 seconds, I'm there. Wherever, anytime. I'm a microwave. Men are microwaves. Women are crockpots. <laughs> and and you, know, you know a crockpot. You put the roast in there and you let it simmer all day long. And just when you think it's ready, you come, you take the lid off, and it's got to simmer for six more hours. So you go and you do the dishes and you take out the trash and vacuum, vacuum the house and then you come back and finally that roast is ready to go. And he knows that, he knows that. So this, this man here, he, he, is, he is moving slowly. Really he's wooing her the way that Christ woos us. He doesn't force himself, but he calls. He romances us. Verse 2 says this, Your teeth are as white as sheep, meaning her teeth are clean. <laughs> women, women, take notes. Recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, meaning her teeth are straight. Each tooth matched with its twin, meaning her teeth are there. He says this, your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. What he's saying to her, and he's saying, you're full of life. She needs to hear that. She needs to hear that every day. You're full of life. I choose you. You bring me life. I'm not, I'm not looking around at anyone else. Then he says this, your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David. Be careful with that one, guys. Jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. I mean, can you see what this guy's doing? I mean, he's starting at her head and he is working his way down her body, just delighting in every detail. He's saying, You are captivating. You are lovely. And when it answers the question that haunts her, Am I lovely? 
He says, you are not disappointing to me. I love every detail from your teeth all the way to your toes. And I choose you. Every moment of this end, you can just see the worship here. This isn't some dude saying, you're hot. This is, I mean, he is, he is pulling out the Shakespeare. He is using all this Jewish imagery to just capture the worship of a, of a moment. It's like this man who's standing there under the hoop and he's saying, God, I just praise you that I get to love her, that I get to feel this way, that you've blessed me with this wife. Sex is worship. He is praising God here, delighting in God's creation. Ladies, isn't that worth waiting for? A man who will look at you like he's looked at no one else and say, I'm not disappointed. You are captivating. You don't have to be perfect to be lovely. And, and especially in a culture that says you've got to starve yourself. You've got to be thin. You've got to look like all the supermodels. You need plastic surgery just to be loved. He says, no, I love you. There's no flaw in you. There's no flaw in you. I'm not disappointed. You're the one I will choose the rest of my life. He praises her. Verse 5. Here he is. He's uh, slipping off her dress now. He says this. He looks upon her body. He hasn't even touched her yet. He says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Let's talk about the fawns. Okay, I'm not, I'm not a hunter. Some of you are, I'm not. But how do you approach twin fawns grazing among the lilies? Very slowly, slowly, you move, you can't just run up to those fawns, they're out of there. I'll tell you what, I don't think I can ever see this passage the same after seeing Chris last night as the gazelle. You are, you are a gazelle, my friend. This is, this is important though, all, for all the men. It's really important that you learn to move slowly. That you make her feel safe. That you woo her and you romance her and you let her. The purpose of the honeymoon, I, I, I want to do a whole series at our church called Honeymoon. That's it. <laughs> the purpose of the honeymoon is not sexual conquest. The purpose of the honeymoon is, is not to have sex. 
in every crazy position you've ever seen. You're laughing. But you would, you would be so surprised how many dudes come into marriage and they've been looking at porn their whole life. And they've got, all, they've got all these images and all these positions they've seen and say, she cannot be your porn star. She cannot be. And, and, and so what men do is they come, I'm talking about men that love God that have no idea what sex really is and what intimacy is. So they come running into their honeymoon. And, and what men do is in those first days and weeks and months and years, they trample trust. Because the purpose of the honeymoon is one thing, trust. That's the purpose. If you come into your honeymoon, hey, the purpose here is trust. We're building trust. Because you have the rest of your life to have sex in every crazy position. It is good. But in those early days and years, you've got to move slow. You've got to woo her. You've got to build trust with her. Men, the purpose is this. It's not sex. The purpose is to make her feel safe with you. So that she can say, I'm safe with this man. Earlier in Song of Songs, this woman speaks about her husband. She says this, he's a tree. And I sit under his shade. I sit delighting in his shade. And what she's saying is, this man's safe. I can sit in his shade. He's safe. You would not believe how many men, single men and married men, are not safe. And how many married women, after having sex with their husbands, roll over and they weep themselves to sleep? And after sex, how many women feel more alone than connected? And the dude just pulls up his pants. These are men who, who love sex, but they, they, they don't know intimacy. And they don't know God's blessing in their bedroom. And so men, the purpose is to make her feel safe. She says this earlier. She says about her husband. She's bragging on her husband. She says this. His banner over me is love. And, and the banner was, was, is war imagery. That, that in war, the men back then, it was, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat. And when the men got divided in war, what they, what, they would raise up a banner and the men the warriors would fight back to that banner because the banner was where it's safe. We've got to fight back to that banner. So when she says his banner over me is love, she's saying, man, he loves me in a way that makes me feel safe. And no matter what happens in life, I can run back under his banner. His banner over me is love. Purpose of the honeymoon is trust, men. Verse 6, before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, what he's saying there is all night long. I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Yep. <laughs> you are all together beautiful, my darling. Beautiful in every way. There's no flaw in you. I'm not disappointed here. I love everything about you. One of the things that she says early on in this book 
the very first thing she says is, I don't like the way I look. The first thing she says is, I'm insecure about my body. But here's this woman. She says, I have this insecurity. I don't like the way I look, but I refuse to cave into the culture around me. She says this. She says, I refuse to pursue you at night like the prostitutes. Let's meet in the day. Here's this woman. I just love the woman in Song of Songs. Here's this woman who fears God more than she fears her culture. And she says, I'm insecure. I have this insecurity, but I refuse to sell out. I refuse to give, to, to give my body away for love. And this is her reward. Her reward is this, a man who stands there and cherishes her and honors her and looks at her like he looks at no one else. And he says, there's no flaw in you. What he does, this is beautiful. He takes her insecurity and he wraps it up in life-giving affirmation and he gives it back to her as a gift. He says, I know, I know you're insecure. I know you don't like the way you look but I do. I love it all. There's no flaw in you. Isn't that what God does? Isn't that what God does? God says there's no flaw in you. He takes that insecurity, wraps it up, and he breathes it back into you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me. Come down from Mount Amana, from the peaks of Sinir and Hermon, where the lions have their dens and leopards live among the hills. He's saying, you're safe with me. I'm a tree. My banner over you is love. He doesn't leave her. This is a whole other message, but this man doesn't leave her wandering and wondering. He comes out and says, I am, I am safe. And, and you're going to know that. You don't have to wonder, am I looking at porn every night? You don't have to wonder where, why I'm working late hours at work. Like, I am a tree. I'm a tree and I will do Everything possible, whatever the cost, to make you feel safe with me. Verse 9, you've captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes. With a single jewel of your necklace, your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine. Your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. How do you find that out? All right, we got some action here. It's happening. I love it. This, some of you are like, what is he reading? The Bible. The Bible, it's right there. This is great. Right there, right in the center of Scripture. It's just a great picture for us. He sees her. He smells her. He touches her. He kisses her. He's just enjoying every moment of this. And he's worshiping God. Thank you, God. And she's worshiping God and saying, I'm so glad, God, that you prepared me for this man and this moment. Verse 12, he says this, You, you are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Yeah, this is really important because what he's doing, he's using all this Jewish imagery to capture the holiness of this moment. 
Sex is God. Sex is good. Sex is worship. Sex is fun. But sex is holy. And at this moment, there's this, I mean, you can just tell the presence of God is there. He, and he's, he's maybe on his knees. The holiness of this moment. He's using all this imagery to affirm. Because she says this over and over again, my vineyard is mine and mine alone to give. Which is a Jewish way of saying, listen, I refuse to give myself away cheaply. And he affirms that. He comes and says, thank you for being faithful to me. Thank you for waiting. Thank you for not giving yourself away. Thank you for saving yourself for this moment. This moment is sacred. This moment is holy. You've been hidden. You're a hidden fountain. God has hidden you for this day, for this moment. Sex is sacred. Sex is holy. And, and all throughout Scripture, what we find is that sex is the most powerful thing that can happen between two people. There is nothing more spiritual. There is nothing deeper. It is the most sacred, the most holy, the most God thing that can happen between two people. And this is why over and over again, Scripture says, it's not God saying no. It's God saying, listen, I love you. And sex is a gift, but it's too sacred. It's too holy to share with strangers. And, and I love, I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, don't you realize your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join that to a prostitute? What he's saying is he's saying, hey, if you're, if, if you're a, a child of God, you're one with Christ. Like, you're in Christ. Christ is in you. You're one. I mean, that's the imagery we get all throughout scriptures. I'm one with him. He's one with me. We're one with Christ. And so what Paul's saying, he's saying, just in the same way that you're one with Christ, like when you have sex with someone, you become one with them. And then he goes on to say, listen, you belong to God. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So this, this oneness, this is the most, the most deeply spiritual thing, over and over, it is too sacred, it is too powerful, it is too holy for us to have sex with anyone and everyone. That's why God says, hey, this is for marriage. This is a gift that belongs in marriage. And we all know sex outside of marriage, in the end, causes a deep brokenness. We talked about that last night, that so much of that brokenness is because we don't really love us. And we haven't allowed God to love us. Sex is holy. I just remember 10 years ago, my honeymoon night. The holiness of that moment. That I'd waited my whole life for Erica. And she had been prepared and waited her whole life for me. And there we were. Standing under the hoopah. And God was there. Now, it was awful sex. <laughs> the sex was awful, but 
the holiness of the moment. The worship of that moment. God, I can't believe I get to stand here with her. I had a, uh, a pastor in my life years ago. And he pulled me aside right before my wedding. And his name was Bruce. Bruce was a, a big, strong man with a beard. Bruce pulled me aside and he said, I want you to know something about your honeymoon night. And I just said, whoa, Bruce. And he said this, on your honeymoon night, as you make love to your wife for the first time, I want you to know that Jesus will be standing at the foot of the bed, cheering you on. Go, boy! Come on! Come on! Now, when he told me that, at first it encouraged me. But that honeymoon night, as I made love to my wife, all I could see was Bruce. Get out of here! Get out of here! We love Bruce. See, Hollywood's given us such a cheap, shallow view of sex. Someone has to shout this from the rooftops. I spent, before one of our series on sex, I just, I wanted to read what's the world saying about sex. I went to Barnes and Noble and I just started reading all these books I could find. I had this I had this table just filled with books like sex and the joy of sex and real sex and twilight and <laughs> all these books. And I remember I was reading them and, and there was this girl that came walking over, this mom with one of her boys and she smiled at me and I smiled at her and then she looked down at the table of books and I remember her giving me this evil eye and she grabbed her son and scurried off. <laughs> I love what Jake said earlier. We've got to scream this message. Now what happens in verse 16 is the woman responds here. If he's romancing, she's responding. She says this, Awake north wind, rise up south wind, blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. She responds, come into your garden, my love, taste its finest fruits. Now, now, the north winds were strong winds. The south winds were gentle winds. So what she's saying to her husband here is, I want you to make love to me with strength and gentleness. Now, can you imagine on your honeymoon night, I mean, single ladies, try this. Okay, things are steaming up here. He's been wooing you. He's been romancing you. He's been moving slowly toward those fawns. And then she responds here. And in a moment, it's like, could you imagine just in a moment, she just, awake north wind. Awake south wind. 
come blow on my garden. He will pass out. You will have him right where you want him, ladies. So what happens is the, the door is shut, the curtains close, and they make love. And then afterwards, we get this, this short scene here. 5-1, I've entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my milk. In the morning, he's still there. He's fully there. And this is why she can say, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Here's this man who's fully submitted to God and fully committed to his wife. And she can say, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Now, this next verse, this is the last verse. This next verse, the rabbis teach that this is the only place in the whole book of the Song of Songs where God speaks. This is where God responds. He has romanced her. She has responded. And now God speaks. God weighs in. Here's what God says. O lover and beloved, Eat and drink. Yes, drink deeply of your love. What God says is this. Yes. God says, yes, drink deeply of your love. And they really believe that God is there and that he's hovering over them as they make love, that God is blessing them, that he's protecting, that he's leading them. And I just, we have such a great calling, don't we, to just live this and to show the world a sex worth waiting for and worth fighting for and worth healing for. We hope you have enjoyed this session. For more information, please visit our website at www.moralrevolution.com.